We've been studying through the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians and we have seen the Apostle Paul as he is speaking to these Christians in Corinth about their arguing and their fighting and their dividing. And you remember how he began this section of these four chapters when he spoke to them there in chapter 1 and verse 10 that he writes to them that there would be no divisions among them but that they would be united with the same mind and the same uh, judgment. And he's continuing that line of reasoning as he continues then to write this to the Corinthians because of their faulty way of thinking. They are attributing to worldly wisdom and tying closely to that and following the ways of the world rather than the ways of God. And we've noted in our study that the way the Apostle Paul does that in these four chapters is somewhat intricate. And we've been trying to follow that line of reasoning that the Apostle Paul has done. This fourth chapter is truly amazing and it is also intricate, but I think to really fascinating as he kind of brings this to a thunderous thought and really in some ways kind of blindsides I think the Corinthians to try to get them to understand exactly what they're supposed to do. So we'll read the whole fourth chapter together here uh, and then we'll break it down paragraph by paragraph and see how the Apostle Paul is speaking to them about how they can stop the dividing and the fighting and the quarreling. Okay, First Corinthians chapter 4. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself. But I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another." For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would we also reign that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you? For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To this present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure when slandered we entreat we have become and are and are still like the scum of the world the refuse of all things i do not write these things to make you ashamed but to admonish you as my beloved children for though you have countless guides in christ you do not have many fathers for i became your father in christ jesus through the gospel i urge you then be imitators of me 
That is why I sent Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Should I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? That is a great chapter. (laughs) All right. Let's look at some of the things that we see the Apostle Paul talking about. You will notice how he comes back to this idea of here's what you should regard us apostles as. He has spent quite a bit of time in that because these divisions, as we saw in chapter one, centered around. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. I am of Christ. Have all of these divisions going on. And he reminds them and says, You should regard us as servants of Christ and we are stewards of the mysteries of God. We have been given a gift. And remember, we saw that in chapter two, as well as in chapter three, uh, these apostles and prophets and teachers should be held in high regard because they were carrying the mysteries of God. They had the mind of Christ revealed to them through the Holy Spirit. But that wasn't for them, the Corinthians, to start arguing about who they should follow and say one is greater than another. No, no, we are simply messengers. We are simply servants. We are simply stewards of these mysteries. And so he wants them to understand the message we proclaim to you was the very words of God, but you're not supposed to elevate us. We're servants. We're just simply stewards doing the work. And they should be regarded then as those who possess those mysteries and what a privilege it was, as the Apostle Paul said in chapter 3, that they would be able to be servants of God, possessing the mysteries of God that they revealed then through their preaching and through their writings. And I think it's useful to take a, a quick little point right here to make mention of this does tell us something very important that The Apostle Paul regularly speaks to this idea that we have the mysteries of God and we have now revealed them to you. And the reason why this is useful for us is we certainly live in a time and in a culture when it comes to the things of God that there are supposedly still these mysteries that need to still be understood, that need to be revealed even further. And so if you would just get a divine revelation or if God would just speak to you and He would reveal to you certain things that God had not revealed previously. And I hope you get a sense of how the Apostle Paul is saying, you don't need to seek the mysteries of of God. We were given the mysteries and that's what we proclaim to you. That's what we preach to you. And that's what we wrote down to you. And that's what the whole point of chapter three and chapter two has been about is you think you're something because you are possessing something different or it makes you greater in some way. Why are you seeking these prophecies or mysteries or things like that? When Paul says we have given those things to you. 
And I think Jude 3 is useful in that. This faith that's been delivered once for all. The whole book of 1 John is all about you already have the Spirit. You have everything you need. You don't need to go on and try to seek some other revelation. Try to find some other information from God. Everything has been written down and revealed to us. And so it was a a useful reminder because these four chapters, that has undergirded this context of why he writes to them about the mysteries of God and the wisdom of God where he's telling them you have the wisdom of God if you would listen to it. You're listening to the wisdom of the world. It's telling you false things. The wisdom of God is resting right here. And in particular, when you think of the Apostle Paul, he's saying, I'm telling it to you if you would listen to the things I'm preaching to you. And so that message then is being communicated to them as well. And so notice because Paul says that we were these faithful servants and stewards of the mysteries of God, that it is important that we be found trustworthy in verse 2. Since, since we've been given this grace and we have been given this charge, it is important that we would be found trustworthy. And notice that he makes the point that they will be judged for what they've done. You see that. In verse 3, verse 4, and in verse 5, where where in verse 5 we see that this judgment is going to be pronounced by God. He is the one who's going to take care of these things. And so God is going to judge on that judgment day. Now, why does he have to say that? Why does he want to break into that right here? Well, I believe the point is, he's not concerned about being evaluated by these Corinthians because as he's asserted back in chapter 3 verse 1, they're thinking worldly. They're thinking fleshly. They're infants in Christ. And here they are charging Paul and saying, you know, I just don't know about you. You know, we're all about Apollos, but you, eh, not so much. And you get a sense of that as we read at the end of that fourth chapter. He says, I'll come to you in power if we need to do it that way. And they're downplaying Paul. And he says, I have no concern about your evaluation of me. God is going to evaluate me, but because you are infants in Christ and you are not fully mature, but following the wisdom of the world, your evaluation of us is is of no value. That's what verse 3 is saying. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. It just, you know, where you're at in your spiritual walk has no value whatsoever in the in your description and judgment of the work that, that we are doing. And I think we get a concept of that. I think we have an understanding of that. The, the, the weightiness of those who we know to be mature in Christ and the things that they teach and say and do hold a greater value than those who act immature in Christ and are worldly and not spiritual. And you go, well, that's my problem. may not be doing the right things. And that's what he's saying. I'm not going to listen to these Corinthians who are evaluating the Apostle Paul when they are living and thinking in such worldly ways. In fact, I think it's very very interesting at the end of verse three, he says, I do not even judge myself for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. 
So while on one hand he says, Corinthians, your evaluation of me, that doesn't faze me at all. I'm not going to be evaluated by that because of your spiritual condition. He also turns around and says, but just because I could look at myself and go, I think I'm doing everything right, that doesn't equip me either. What will equip me is God. God is the one who is the evaluator. He is the one that he will pay attention to. And so the praise from other people that he would like supposedly need to garner the praise of the Corinthians. That's not the basis for judgment. We can get all kinds of people to think we're doing a-okay. We talked about that this morning and the way that people can fool people about their external righteousness while their heart is far from God. You can get all kinds of people to proclaim all kinds of accolades upon you about the kind of Christian you are and oh, what a faithful person. In fact, Pet peeve, you know, number 124 out of many, many, you know, how we often define faithfulness is they were here every time the doors were open, as if that's a really good test of faithfulness. Oh, they were very faithful. Like, they that's nothing. That's easy. Uh, here's what the Apostle Paul is getting at then. The praise of others, that doesn't matter. God and His Word then becomes the only evaluator because only God knows the heart. You see that in verse 5. So don't pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. God will be the evaluator and God will be the judge of my motives. Those who are worldly, those who are outside of Christ, or those who are spiritually immature, their evaluation doesn't matter. They don't know my motives and they don't know my heart, but God does. And that really becomes the basis by which we do our work before God. Notice that's what the Apostle Paul is basically saying is that's what drove his work. It's what drove Apollos. It's what drove Peter. It drove all of those great leaders of Christ is God knows the heart. God knows what I'm doing. And therefore, I need to make sure that I am found faithful to Him. And that's what he says. I need to be a faithful servant of Him. And God has given me a great grace and being a steward of the mysteries of God. And you may think of me as nothing, but what matters is my evaluation that's given to me from God because He knows the intents of the heart. He knows what has happened in the darkness. He knows what goes on in secret. And at the end, Paul is saying, my commending will come from God. The end of verse 5. Then Each one will receive his commendation before God. And we talked about this morning. I don't need it now. Not looking for it now. My concern is that God gives it to me on the final day. And therefore I serve God on that basis. Now he sets all that up. And now watch what he does. This is where this chapter to me is just so fascinating. Look at verse 6. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one another. That is a really interesting statement. He says, all these things that I've been talking about regarding me and Apollos... I've actually applied those things to ourselves for your benefit. He seems to be saying, I was using us as an example to make a point to you. 
And so often we can read the Corinthian letters, because Paul will say the same thing in 2 Corinthians. You get out to chapter 12, and he says that we were applying all the, you think we were applying all these things to ourselves. No, we were talking about you. And he does the same thing here. The point of the Apostle Paul is not to do four chapters of defending himself as apostleship. Why would he do that? He just said, I don't care what your evaluation is of me. What matters is God's evaluation of me. Notice he makes the point, I spoke all of these things about Apollos and myself. Now, I don't think that means they really weren't having divisions about Paul and Apollos. I don't think he was just totally making up a story to make a point. But you'll notice you're getting the idea of it wasn't just those two. They apparently had all kinds of fighting and divisions with all kinds of other leaders and people. And he's saying, I used us. I didn't name a particular individual in your congregation and say, you follow that guy and that guy and that guy and that guy. He said, I just said all this up about Paul and, and, and Apollos. I told it to you like that. Paul and Apollos and all that. Why would you do that? So... Everything that I was explaining about us and how we look at ourselves and how we look at our work and how we think and act before God, you would do the same. I'm talking about you, Corinthian church, not us. I have applied what I've been talking to us but it's actually about you. And you'll see that later on as we move, move forward. And what the idea is that he wants them to follow the example that they have, have been, that they have been given by Paul and Apollos. And notice what this is that he wanted them to learn in verse six. He says that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. I have applied all these things to ourselves and have spoken of it in this way so that you would learn this critical point. Do not go beyond what is written. And think about how that really rounds out what the Apostle Paul has been doing in these four chapters. First, he has been spending quite a bit of time talking about not listening to human wisdom and not following human wisdom. Don't be wise in the ways of the world, but in the ways of God and seek the wisdom of God that came through Paul and Apollos and their teaching. And so he's driving that very point to them. Don't go beyond what is written, but stay in the scriptures because that is the mind of Christ. And notice why he says this is so important. I would have never thought these two would be cause and effect. But look at it again in verse 6 so you see it. He says that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. Why? That none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Notice the connection that he makes. When you move beyond the scriptures, you are now proud and arrogant. And I don't know that we think about it that way. But the Apostle Paul says, that's what you're doing. You are being arrogant before God. Because what you are saying is, I know that it says this, but I say, I know it reads this, But here's my wisdom and my understanding, even though it says plainly this, that, and what have you, we can so easily come along and go, well, I think it's supposed to be like this. 
And we have seen some examples of that in the past few chapters where he's talking to those Corinthians about that. And he's underlining that right here and saying, do you understand that that's pride? Do you understand that it's arrogance when you walk outside of the Scriptures and you rely upon human wisdom and human understanding and worldly thinking? That is saying that we have a leg up above the wisdom of God. I have a greater wisdom, a greater understanding, a greater insight than God, and so I will apply that here. And he's saying, the reason I've applied all these things to ourselves and how I've been talking about myself and Apollos and this whole situation is so that you would learn a critical message. Don't listen to the wisdom of the world. Don't listen to what other people are saying. Listen to us for we're speaking the very words of God and do not go beyond it. Which has been in summary, I think I've said it now for five straight lessons out of 1 Corinthians. It's not about us. It's about God. And that's the point that he's driving at them again. As soon as you make this about us, you've moved to pride. You've moved to arrogance. That is really what the essence of pride is all about. Pride is truly any kind of self-focus. I'm thinking about myself. And we usually do that in one of two ways. And in either aspect of these two ways, I don't know that we always understand it as pride. But we think of ourselves really highly, you know, I'm just so amazing, I'm so good, I mean, no, okay, that's wrong, I shouldn't do that, don't think highly of yourself and all that. And that comes again from self-focus, look at all the good that I'm doing, look how wonderful I am, look at all my talents, look at all my abilities, look at all the things that I've accomplished, I begin to feel good about myself. And sometimes in trying to combat that and being humble... What we will do is we will move to a negative self-focus. I'm terrible, I'm awful, I'm rotten, I'm despicable, I do nothing good, I'm a mess, I'm miserable, and all that. And I want you to observe, that's also self-focus. You're still focusing on yourself. What you have the Scriptures always trying to do is move us away from thinking about self and think Godwardly. Have a Godward focus. That will give you the proper way of thinking about God, about others, and about yourself. That will give you the right line of thinking. But so often what we do is we swing in this pendulum of, ah, no, I'm being proud, so no, I'm a jerk, I'm terrible, I'm awful, and we beat ourselves up. Now you're still self-focused, you're just going the wrong end of it. Move to a Godward focus. And that's where he goes with this in talking about their problem and why there are divisions is because they are self-focused. And notice what he does there in verse 7. For who sees anything different in you? I like the New American Standard that says basically, who says you are superior in any way? Why are you so much better than somebody else? Why would you think that you're superior to another person? And we have an easy answer to that. We'd go, well, because look at all the stuff that I have, all the stuff that I've done. I'm really smart. I'm really brilliant. I've done really great things. I've acquired all this stuff. And we just come up with this big list. And notice how the Apostle Paul combats that to set us to God focus. Middle of verse 7. What do you have that you did not receive? You know, just take a step back for a minute. Think about that for a minute. What do you possess that you haven't been given by God? Your intellect? Uh, That's by God. Uh, Your talents and abilities? Well, that was by God. Your wealth? 
That was by God also. Your family. Well, that was by God also. Your faith. Well, that's because of God also. I mean, where are you going to point and say, well, that's all me and not God? And that's what he's saying is, okay, you think you're so superior. What do you have that you didn't receive? There is nothing that is from you. And that's what Job is so great with that. As Job just loses everything, what a concept and an understanding to say, you know, naked I came into this world and naked I go. I started with nothing and I'm not taking any of it with me. It was all God giving it to me my whole life. Everything that I have is from God. And the point that he gets at is, so how could you be self-focused and arrogant and proud about yourself if everything you have is from God? Why would you think about self and place such an importance on self when it has been God who has been the one that's blessed you so richly? In fact, you have to love you have to love verse 8. <laughs> Paul, Paul has great sarcasm, and that's certainly a clear usage of it there. Already you have all you want. You've already become rich without us. You've become kings. He says, and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. <laughs> you know, you have it all. You have got it all figured out. You guys are amazing. And the point that he's getting at with them is the problem is you think you're self-sufficient. You think you're doing well. You think you're rich. And you think that based on this worldly way of thinking. And you don't have a Godward way of thinking. You are self-focused rather than God-focused. You think about how Jesus said that to the church in Laodicea that we know very well. The very same problem is in the church in Laodicea, Revelation 3.16, where He says, So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of My mouth, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. And that's the sarcasm that verse 8 is getting at. Well, you already have all that you want. You're just ruling away. You have everything. He's reminding them the reason you're doing well is because God has given it to you. How can you be proud? How can you possess this arrogance? And so what it reminds us then is that self-satisfaction then is what leads us to be poor and blind before God. That's why when we kicked off our Sermon on the Mount study, we observed the very idea that he would begin with blessed are the poor in spirit. The people who understand that it's not about me, it's about God. It's recognizing what God has done. It's understanding the grace of God. And the very next thing to say, blessed are those who mourn, who understand their sins before God and how weighty it is. And here is the Apostle Paul saying, oh, well, you just did it all without God's help. You didn't need anybody else's help and you didn't need our help, apparently. And 
obviously that's not the case. They certainly needed Paul and Apollos. And so he pushes that with them and helps them understand those things. It's such a contrast to the attitude that you see the Apostle Paul having when he said in the Philippian letter to those Philippians, not not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. You know, here are the the Corinthians going, we are rich, we are self-satisfied, we have everything we need. And I, I don't forget the lens and layer of chapters 12 through 14 about this quibbling with the spiritual gifts. They They think they're something. And Paul is going, I don't think about those things. I forget what is behind me and I'm just straining forward to what lies ahead. I'm just reaching for the upward call. That is the picture of spiritual maturity is not thinking that we have attained or that we have rested on some particular plateau before God. Again, it is a God-centered focus and seeing ourselves for who we really are before God and recognizing that everything that we have spiritually and physically Physically is truly from God, whereas self-focus simply shows us to be fools. And that's what verses 8 through 10 are basically doing, where he uses them and says, well, we're just fools then for Christ's sake, aren't we? You're self-sufficient and we're nothing. Here, here, we've just become the, these, uh, I love, love the picture in verse 9, that God has exhibited us all, us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we've become a great spectacle to the world and the angels and the men. You're so great. And we're so nothing. Hmm, How about that? (laughs) You can just get a sense of what the Apostle Paul is trying to move them to change their way of thinking about God and about themselves. And then notice in the midst of that, the Apostle Paul just moves into a picture of the truth of what the Apostles are doing. Listen to this in verse 11. To the present hour, we are hungry and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Listen to how the Apostle Paul says that they have responded to mistreatment. He says, we just continued to give and continued to sacrifice. I mean, what a picture there. When reviled, what did we do? Well, we blessed. That's what we did. We have all kinds of people like the Corinthians reviling us about what we're doing and challenging us in our work and saying things about us. So we may be reviled, but you know what we do? We just keep blessing. We just keep blessing. He says, we're persecuted. You know what we do? We just endure. We continue to accept that persecution everywhere we go. We continue to endure those things. When we are slandered, we entreat. We turn around and speak well of these people. And then the strongest of it all, we have become 
and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. That is a really neat Greek word. <laughs> that, uh, uh, the New King James uses off-scouring, and I like that. <laughs> because the idea of that word for scum is that was actually a word that was used to speak of when you were done cooking and you were done eating, the leftovers that were in the pot and that were on the plate that you scraped off into the trash can, that's what that word is for scum. And that's why the next word is trash, garbage, refuse. We are just the trash can. That's how we appear before the world. That's how people treat us. They persecute us, we endure. They revile us, we bless. They do these awful things to us and say terrible things about us. We continue to do what is right. It's like we're just simply the scraps being thrown into the trash can. The way people treat us and the way people look at us and the way people speak about us. Now why is he telling them that? I mean the whole point is where where are you going to get pride out of this? And I think it's important to point out, that's not the way God looked at them, but it is the way the world looked at them. That is the way the world perceived Paul and Apollos and those teachers, is that they were as nothing, that they were very small and they were very useless. And I think it's important for us to see that, that he gives this picture. Now, watch how he pushes this idea again, because he says now in verse 14, I'm not saying these things to make you ashamed. I'm trying to teach you. I'm trying to admonish you. I'm not shaming you when I say these things about the things you're saying about us and how we respond and how the world says things and does things to us and how we respond. He says, I'm admonishing you, verse 14, as my beloved children, I love you. You're my children. In fact, he says in verse 15, you have all kinds of guides. This is the same word over in Galatians that sometimes is translated as tutors or disciplinarians. I use it over there as babysitters or nannies. You have all kinds of those people, but you only have one father. Now here's Paul going, that's me. I was the one who came to you and I gave you the message of the gospel that that gave you life. I'm a father to you in the gospel. And now watch what he does in verse 16. So imitate me, which is what he meant back in verse six. Why have you applied all these things to yourself and Apollos so that you would see in Paul how he behaved and dealt with mistreatment and dealt with these Corinthians and dealt with those in the world so that they would do the same thing? Here he makes this point. We're hungry, we're thirsty, we're poorly dressed, we labor, we work with our hands, we're reviled, but when we're reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we're slandered, we entreat. We have become to the world like like scum, like the the refuse of, of the earth. And I don't want you to be ashamed. I'm not saying those things that you would feel shame, but to teach you because I'm a father to you to imitate me and do the same thing that we do. And that requires God-focus, not self-focus. In fact, he knows verse 17, he says, that's why I sent Timothy to you. In fact, I want you to know that this is what I teach to all the churches. He said, I'm not even making a model out of you, my Corinthians, my beloved children. I tell all the churches that. That this is what the life in Christ looks like. It is a life of sacrifice. 
It is a life of giving ourselves. It is a life of being the bottom rung. It is a life of being last. That's what it means. And people with worldly wisdom will revile that and persecute that. And they will say, that's ridiculous. How can you live your life not thinking about yourself and not putting yourself first? How can you possibly do that? Don't you know you're hurting yourself? Stop that. Think about yourself. Put yourself first. Do all those things. That's why Paul has set all of this up about worldly wisdom to hit it right here and point out to them, Do you see how we apostles have behaved with you? Do you see how we have been mistreated and reviled and persecuted and are treated like the scum of the world? That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. Get used to that kind of mistreatment. Which sets forward to me, I think, two really important things. Number one, this will end divisions and fighting if we have this attitude. This is the biggest death blow to divisions and fighting and brings unity is we're last, not first. Not about me, it's about God. Not about my desires and my wishes and my wants, it's all about God's. What He wants is my concern. And if that means persecution, if that means being reviled, if that means being helpless, homeless, hungry, thirsty, all the things that He describes in there, whatever it means for me to be a servant of Christ, that's what I'll do. If we all have that attitude, there will never be a fight. There will never be a quarrel. If everybody has this very mind that Paul is exhibiting. Which I think flips then to the other side in thinking about this. Is that here he is telling the Corinthians that you must sacrifice yourself so completely that people on the outside may regard you as the scum of the world and the refuse of all things. He says that's what's happened to us. And then turns around and says now imitate me. I mean, what a way to go about that. That this is how we're treated. This is how we are regarded. And we know that they are rich before God, but they are not rich in this world. They are mistreated, persecuted, and reviled and hated. And he's telling them, if that's what it means, that's what it means. To be willing to sacrifice and to be regarded as that. And as I thought about that... I believe the reason why my immediate resistance to that kind of thinking, and you might have immediate resistance to the idea of being thought of as the scum of the world and the refuse of all things, I think shows how much we have been influenced by the wisdom of the world. Because we have this great tendency that when culture pushes on us and says, you're wrong, that's not right. We think you're crazy. Your, your, your ideas don't make any sense. We often change. Rather than resisting and saying, no, we have the wisdom of God. We have the revealed word of God. And that we would expect that the world in its darkened thinking and lack of spiritual understanding would look at people who are servants of Christ and go, 
you guys are just the trash can. I mean, you don't make any sense. You just are sacrificing and sacrificing, and you don't even do all your desires and all your wishes. You just keep serving this God. And you go, yep. Because we're God-focused, not self-focused. We're putting our hope in God. Thus, when we are mistreated, we do not mistreat back. When we are reviled, we blessed. When we are persecuted, we maintain our faith and do not change the gospel message. And we continue to endure. When we are slandered, we answer graciously. And please consider that the Apostle Paul is saying these things because it is immature Christians that are challenging him, not the world at this moment. To not forget that immature, worldly thinking Christians, quote unquote, will also regard us this way, just as Paul has been regarded by them. That's surprising because we want to think that would never happen. But it would. And that's what he's dealing with. Is He's trying to move these Christians from being infants in Christ, as chapter 3, verse 1 said, to think spiritually, to apply godly wisdom, to understand this is the life of following Christ. And thus Paul says, I have described our whole life before you, what Apollos did and what I did and all the work that we did, that you would see in us that we are nothing more than servants and stewards. Now imitate me and have the same mentality of a Godward focus and not a self-focus. For if we do that, that will spare us of all kinds of difficulties. It will spare us from all kinds of fighting, strife, and division. I love that chapter. I hope you go back and look at that some more. Like I said, it's an intricate argument, but it's a beautiful one that he makes when he comes back around and says, you know, I'm talking about me, and I'm applying it to you, and you go do what you see in us. What a challenge it is to look at the life of those great followers of Christ and say, that's the model that was given for us to look at their lives and sacrifice like they did. We're going to sing a song.